Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3, we actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast. So I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available. And even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies. So please do check it out. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. Happy studying, everyone. This is Patrick Beeman from the Inside the Boards podcast. I have a question to kick off this episode of Step 2 Secrets. From Elsevier's Clinical Key, a 30-year-old male patient presents to the emergency department complaining of left facial paralysis since waking this morning. On physical exam, the left side of his face shows eyebrow sagging, an inability to close that eye, and disappearance of the nasolabial fold. Sensation and extraocular movements are intact bilaterally. This patient most likely has damage in which of the following locations? Is it A, the left abducens nerve, B, the right abducens nerve, C, the left facial nerve, or D, the right facial nerve? And the correct answer here is choice C, the left facial nerve. So facial paralysis on the left side of the face can result from either damage to the ipsilateral facial nerve, that's cranial nerve 7, or to the contralateral upper motor neuron, which travels from the motor strip in the cerebral cortex to the pons. This patient's presentation is most consistent with Bell's palsy, which results in difficulty closing the eye and flattening of the nasolabial fold. Patients typically present with the sudden onset, usually over a couple hours, of unilateral facial paralysis, and the findings you need to remember are what are mentioned, the eyebrow sagging, an inability to close the eye, disappearance of the nasolabial fold, and also drooping at the affected corner of the mouth, and patients can also have decreased tearing, hyperacusis, and a loss of taste sensation on the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. So if you see those findings in the setting of unilateral facial paralysis, think Bell's palsy. So now, with that quick high-yield question, let's get into step two secrets. This is Ted O'Connell, and this is the ear, nose, and throat surgery chapter from USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th edition. Question 1. What is the most common cause of lower motor neuron facial nerve paralysis? How does it present? The most common cause is Bell palsy. Look for sudden onset unilateral total facial paralysis versus upper motor neuron paralysis, which only involves the lower facial muscles, usually occurring after an upper respiratory infection. The cause is thought to be a reactivation of latent herpes simplex 1 infection in most cases. Patients may have hyperacusis, in which everything sounds loud because the stapedius muscle in the ear is paralyzed. 
In severe cases, patients may be unable to close the affected eye. If so, use drops to protect the eye. Most cases resolve spontaneously in about one month, although some have permanent sequelae. Oral prednisone, an antiviral treatment for herpes, for example, valacyclovir or acyclovir, may improve outcomes and lessen duration of symptoms. Question 2. What are the other causes of lower motor neuron facial nerve paralysis? Herpes infection, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which commonly involves the eighth nerve. Look for vesicles on the pinna and inside the ear. Encephalitis or meningitis may be present. Lyme disease, one of the most common causes of bilateral facial nerve palsy. Middle ear or mastoid infections. Meningitis. Temporal bone fracture. Look for battle sign and or bleeding from the ear. Tumor, classically an acoustic schwannoma of the cerebellopontine angle. Order a CT or MRI scan of the head if the cause is not apparent or if the history or exam raises suspicion, especially in the presence of additional neurologic signs. Question 3. What are the common causes of hearing loss? The most common cause is aging, presbyacusis. Prescribe a hearing aid if needed. The history may suggest other causes. Prolonged or intense exposure to loud noise, for example, work-related. Congenital torch infection. Meniere disease, accompanied by severe vertigo, tinnitus, nausea, and vomiting. Treat acute episodes with benzodiazepines, anticholinergics, and antihistamines, such as meclizine or dimenhydrinate. Diuretics are often used for ongoing treatment. Surgery may be used for refractory cases. Drugs, for example, aminoglycosides, aspirin, quinine, loop diuretics, and cisplatin. Tumor, classically an acoustic neuroma. Labyrinthitis, it may be viral or follow or extend from meningitis or otitis media. And then miscellaneous causes, such as diabetes, hypothyroidism, multiple sclerosis, sarcoidosis, or pseudotumor cerebri. Question 4. What is the usual cause of sudden deafness? Sudden sensory neural hearing loss, or SSNHL, involves acute, unexplained hearing loss that is usually unilateral and occurs over hours, usually less than 72 hours. More than 90% of patients with SSNHL report tinnitus. Most cases are idiopathic, but have been postulated to be due to viral causes, microvascular events, or autoimmune causes. Physical examination is unremarkable. MRI is indicated to rule out etiologies such as acoustic neuroma, multiple sclerosis, or vascular insufficiency. Glucocorticoids, administered orally or by intratympanic injection, are considered first-line therapy. Antiviral agents are sometimes used, though there is not much evidence to support their use. Two-thirds of patients will experience recovery, though the resolution is often not complete. Among those who recover, hearing usually returns within two weeks. Question 5. What is the most common cause of acquired hearing loss in children? Bacterial meningitis. All children should receive formal hearing testing after a bout of meningitis. 
Question six, what are the common causes of vertigo? Vertigo can result from the same eighth cranial nerve lesions that cause hearing loss, Meniere disease, tumor, infection, and multiple sclerosis. Another common cause is benign positional paroxysmal vertigo, which is induced by certain head positions, may be accompanied by horizontal nystagmus, never vertical or rotatory nystagmus, and is not associated with hearing loss. This condition often resolves spontaneously. No treatment is required. Epley maneuver or modified Epley maneuvers may help with resolution of symptoms. Question 7. How is a deviated nasal septum treated in patients with recurrent sinusitis with surgical correction? Question 8. What are the three common causes of rhinitis? Viral, allergic, and bacterial. Question 9. How do you recognize and treat viral rhinitis? Viral rhinitis, the common cold, may be due to rhinovirus, the most common cause, influenza, para-influenza, Coxsackie virus, adenovirus, respiratory syncytial virus, coronavirus, or echovirus. Treatment is symptomatic. Vasoconstrictors such as phenylephrine can be used for short-term symptomatic relief, but they may cause rebound congestion when discontinued. Question 10. How do you recognize and treat allergic rhinitis? Allergic rhinitis, hay fever, is associated with seasonal flare-ups, boggy and bluish turbinates, onset before 20 years of age, nasal polyps, sneezing, pruritus, conjunctivitis, wheezing or asthma, eczema, a positive family history, eosinophils in the nasal mucosa, and elevated serum immunoglobulin E. Skin tests may identify an allergen. Treat with avoidance of known antigens such as pollen. Antihistamines, nasal steroids, and or chromalin may be used for more severe symptoms. Desensitization is also an option. Question 11. What causes bacterial rhinitis? How is it treated? Group A streptococci, pneumococci, or staphylococci are the most common culprits. Look for coexisting sore throat, fever, and tonsillar exudate. Do streptococcal throat cultures and treat with antibiotics if appropriate. Question 12. What causes nosebleeds? The most common cause of nosebleeds is trauma. For example, nose picking is a common cause in children. Environmental changes also commonly cause nosebleeds. Watch out for the following causes. Local tumor, nasopharyngeal angiofibroma seen in adolescent boys with no history of trauma or blood dyscrasia. Signs include recurrent nosebleeds and or obstruction. Leukemia from pancytopenia, typically in children with associated fever and anemia. And other causes of thrombocytopenia, for example, idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, and hemolytic uremic syndrome. Question 13. True or false? A neck mass is more likely to be benign in a child than in an adult. True. Roughly 75% of neck masses are benign in children, whereas 75% are malignant in patients over 40 years old. Question 14. What are the common causes of a neck mass? In children, watch for thyroglossal duct cysts, which have a midline location and elevate with tongue protrusion. 
branchial cleft cysts, which are lateral in location and often become infected, cystic hygroma, a benign tumor also known as lymphangioma that is associated with Turner syndrome and treated with surgical resection, and cervical lymphadenitis. Cervical lymphadenitis is usually due to streptococcal pharyngitis, Epstein-Barr virus, which is common in the second and third decades, cat scratch disease, or mycobacterial infection. In terms of malignancy in children, leukemia or lymphoma may present with cervical lymphadenopathy. In adults, suspect malignancy, particularly if the mass is firm, non-mobile, and greater than 2 centimeters. Either lymphadenopathy from a primary tumor such as lymphoma or metastatic neoplasm, usually squamous cell carcinoma. The mass may also represent the tumor itself, especially with thyroid cancer. Question 15. Describe the workup for an unknown cancer in the neck. The workup includes random biopsy of the nasopharynx, palatine tonsils, and base of the tongue, as well as laryngoscopy, bronchoscopy, and esophagoscopy, with biopsies of any suspicious lesions. This approach is known as triple endoscopy with triple biopsy. Question 16. What is the scientific name for swimmer's ear? What causes it? Otitis externa, which most often is due to infection with Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Patients have pain with manipulation of the auricle and erythematous swollen skin in the auditory canal. Foul-smelling discharge and conductive hearing loss may also be present. Treat with topical antibiotics, such as ofloxacin, neomycin, or polymyxin B, and possibly topical steroids to reduce swelling. Question 17. What causes otitis media? How do you recognize it? Otitis media, or inflammation of the middle ear, is an extremely common pediatric infection, most often due to infection with streptococcus pneumoniae, haemophilus influenza, or moraxella cateralis. Patients have no pain with manipulation of the auricle. Positive symptoms include earache, fever, an erythematous and bulging tympanic membranes, the light reflex and landmarks are difficult to see with otoscopy, and also nausea and vomiting. Question 18. What are the complications of otitis media? How are they avoided? Complications include tympanic membrane perforation, mastoiditis, look for fluctuance and inflammation over the mastoid process, often with anterior displacement of the affected ear, roughly two weeks after the onset of otitis media. Other complications include labyrinthitis, palsies of cranial nerves 7 and 8, meningitis, cerebral abscess, dural sinus thrombosis, and chronic otitis media due to permanent perforation of the tympanic membrane. Patients with chronic otitis media may develop cholesteatomas with marginal perforations that require surgical excision. Otitis media is generally treated with antibiotics to avoid these complications. These antibiotics include amoxicillin, second-generation cephalosporin such as cefuroxime or amacrolide. Question 19. What is the problem with recurrent otitis media? How is it treated? Recurrent otitis media is a common pediatric problem, along with prolonged secretory otitis, a result of incompletely resolved otitis media, and can cause hearing loss with resultant developmental problems, including speech and cognitive functions. 
Treat with prophylactic antibiotics or tympanostomy tubes. Adenoidectomy is controversial but may help in some cases. It is thought to help prevent blockage of the eustachian tubes. Question 20. What causes infectious meningitis? How do you recognize and treat it? Infectious meningitis, also known as bullous meningitis, is an inflammation of the tympanic membranes that can be diagnosed when otoscopy reveals vesicles on the tympanic membrane. Infectious meningitis is classically caused by mycoplasma species, but streptococcus pneumoniae or viruses may also be the culprit. Treat with erythromycin or clarithromycin to cover mycoplasma species and strep pneumoniae. Question 21. What are the common bacterial causes of sinusitis? How is this condition recognized clinically? Sinusitis is often due to strep pneumoniae, haemophilus influenza, or other streptococcal or staphylococcal species. Look for tenderness over the affected sinuses, headache, and purulent nasal discharge. Associated symptoms are headache and or toothache. Radiographs, or CT, are used to confirm the diagnosis and show opacification of the sinus, classically with an air fluid level in acute sinusitis. CT scans are preferred to evaluate chronic sinusitis or suspected extension of infection outside the sinusitis. Watch for high fever and chills. Treat with antibiotics such as amoxicillin, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, a second or third generation cephalosporin, a macrolide, or amoxicillin clavulanic acid. Culture is usually not necessary unless the patient fails to respond to antibiotics. Operative invention, such as a drainage procedure or sinus obliteration, may be required for resistant cases. Question 22. By what age are the frontal sinuses well-developed in children? The frontal sinuses may not be well-developed until the age of 10 years. Question 23. Define otosclerosis. How is it treated? In otosclerosis, the otic bones become fixed together and impede hearing. It is the most common cause of progressive conductive hearing loss in adults, whereas presbycusis is the most common cause of sensory neural hearing loss in adults. Treat with a hearing aid or surgery. Number 24. What causes parotid gland swelling? The classic cause is mumps. The best treatment for mumps and the complication of infertility is prevention through immunization. Parotid gland swelling may also be due to neoplasms, of which pleomorphic adenoma is the most common type. Sjogren syndrome, sialolithiasis, a stone in the parotid duct, sarcoidosis, and bulimia are other causes. Alcoholism can cause parotid gland hypertrophy as well. Remember, too, that the parotid gland contains lymph nodes within its parenchyma, which is unique in this regard, and these can become enlarged in a number of conditions, as with lymph nodes elsewhere. Question 25. How do you recognize a nasal fracture? What complication may result? A nasal fracture can be seen on radiographs or CT scan. Watch for septal hematoma, which must be surgically removed to prevent pressure-induced septal necrosis. Question 26. What is the Weber test used to evaluate? How is it performed and interpreted? The Weber test compares bone conduction in the two ears. 
A vibrating tuning fork is placed on the forehead, and the patient is asked where the vibrating sound is heard best. The normal response is to hear the vibration in the middle, or equally in both ears. In patients with conductive hearing loss, the sound is heard best in the affected ear, whereas in patients with sensory neural hearing loss, the sound is heard best in the unaffected ear. Question 27. What is the Rene test used to evaluate? How is it performed and interpreted? The Rene test compares air conduction with bone conduction. A vibrating tuning fork is placed on the tip of the mastoid process. When the patient can no longer hear the sound, the tuning fork is removed from the mastoid and placed next to the auditory meatus of the external ear, and the patient is asked if the sound can be heard. Because air conduction is normally greater than bone conduction, patients can hear the tuning fork when it is placed next to the auditory meatus, air conduction, even after they can no longer hear it vibrating on the mastoid, bone conduction. In patients with conductive hearing loss, bone conduction is greater than air conduction. Thus, they cannot hear the tuning fork when it is placed next to the external auditory meatus. In patients with sensory neural hearing loss, both air and bone conduction are impaired, but the normal ratio, air conduction greater than bone conduction, is maintained. Thus, they still hear the tuning fork next to the ear after they can no longer hear it on the mastoid. That's the end of this chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at InsideTheBoards.com, including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets.